Hey everybody, it's Michelle Hensley out here at Hope Center Indy, and I am in studio today with the Associate Director, Mary Nolan. Hi, Mary. Hey. Uh, Mary is uh, not only the Associate Director here at Hope Center, but she's also an author. She wrote, uh, She Won't Shrink Back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you want to tell us about that? Oh, Look at that, right? Real fast. So I actually wrote the book when I was 26 years old. Oh, wow. And so it is, um, I remember at the time I was really reading different books by a lot of women authors in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, but I just didn't really see any books written by women in their 20s, and I was like, I'm going to do that, because um, some of these other books, they don't, they're not really remembering what it was like to be in your 20s, and so I was like, I'm going to write it right now, so that it will sound like a 26-year-old wrote it, and it does, and so now, looking back, I think I wrote it you know, seven years ago and, um, almost eight years ago now. And it, you know, it sounds like a 26 year old wrote it, but that's exactly what I wanted. But I still very proud of the fact that it kind of pulls in a lot of the things that young women are struggling with and, you know, just some building the foundation of things for your life. And so I talk about the story of God telling me to build my house and then also God telling me to become a foster parent. And so it was just the journey of building my house while also learning and getting my heart prepared to be a foster mom. And, um, Um, even just starting the application process, working with someone from DCS to talk through the process, starting to take the classes, I guess. And I remember going to get my um, my CPR training and all of that training. And so in just that short period of time, Mm -hmm. seven years, Mm -hmm. you said? I think seven or eight. Quite a bit's changed Mm -hmm. since you wrote that book. Uh A a lot, actually. I mean, God's taken you a lot further than that. So we're going to talk about some of that today. Mm -hmm. And I think we should talk about who you are in conjunction to the director. Everybody here? Yes. Everybody else here knows who you are. Um, Your pastor, Hubert Nolan's daughter, Uh uh, the founder, uh, co-founder of Hope Center Indy. Uh And so you have grown up with a pastor as a father Uh and he started Brookville Church and you got to see all that. Yes. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, when you were, when you wrote your book, were you at the church already? Oh yes. Yes. I had been working at the church for at least five years or six years at that point. Yeah. And you Mm -hmm. were, what was your title there? Uh, I was the children's minister and the women's minister. So, so you've always had a heart for helping women. Yeah. Yeah. I've always had a heart for shepherding people, for helping people to connect with God, helping them grow in their helping them to connect with God and, and grow in their like teaching Bible stories in a way that helps them to really understand God's heart for them and what it means for their life. Okay, so you grew up in the church uh-huh. and you're working in the church and you're working with your dad and your dad comes in, Pastor Nolan, uh-huh. and says, I'm leaving the church and I'm going to go by the, I, I'm going to go start another ministry that God's put in my heart. Mm-hmm. What was that like? I mean, what it, how, did the, how did that go over with the family, all of this this new idea? Because he'd been at the church for, what, 30, 40 years at that 33 time? years. 33 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that um, there, were some, there were some, I guess, indicators looking back that this was really stirring in his heart. Looking back, I can see that God was preparing him for that. And um, But at the time, because I worked with Dad at the church, he was my boss there before he left, and I didn't want him to leave, you know, and so, but I, but I knew that if he was saying that this is what the Lord is calling him to, that he needed to be obedient and to follow what God was asking him to do. And at the time, you know, Pastor McLuhan, who is a big prayer warrior here at the time, dad had already gone to India a couple of times with Pastor McLuhan on different mission trips. And I just remember that, like, just thinking, 
okay, Mary, at least he's not moving to India. Like I was kind of like grieving that he was no longer the pastor at our church, but it was just like, okay, he's not moving to India. He's still living in the same house and, um, you still get to be close in that way. But yeah, I mean, it was a huge, huge change for us. I mean, especially on church staff, but we had, you know, we had some really great leaderships that, that came on after him. And so just being part of the team that navigated his, um, transition, the, you know, him being there for 33 years and then transitioning to our new pastor, Pastor Chris, I'm proud that I was able to be on that team and that I was able, I think in a way, I don't want to speak too much about, read too much into this, I guess, but I think in a way having me on staff was still like a connection for some of the people in our church to my dad and just knowing, you know, they knew me when I was little and I knew them. And of course there's tons of people at our church that are new and didn't have just been here four or five years instead of 30 some. But I think it was still like, people were like, oh, you know, her heart's the same as her dad's and. I hope it was somewhat of a comfort to them. In my mind, I like to think that it was helpful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they knew your family, your family, yeah, your uh-huh. whole family, and mm-hmm. there's five of you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your dad and David left, mm-hmm. and they came over to start this adventure. Eventually, you know, they got the building here at Hope Center Indy yeah. and started Hope Center Indy, and you were still at the church. Yes. And then what happened? Yeah, so actually, I'll pause just a second. Sure. And so I remember dad's last Sunday at the church was in February, And so I remember the December before that, I was putting up my Christmas tree, and for whatever reason, I was thinking about Dad, you know, him leaving the church to start the Hope Center. And at the time, you know, we didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, but I remember crying while I was putting up my tree, just feeling like, you know, Dad was so excited about this new adventure, but there were still some of us that, you know, hadn't hadn't seen the vision yet that God was giving or, or just, just needed to, to cry a minute about, right. you know, just the fact that this chapter was closing. And, and so anyhow, so I, I remember that in December and then I became a foster parent in January. And so my daughters uh, moved in with me January 11th. Oh, so this is just the month before. Yeah. And oh, wow. so my daughters moved in with me and then like literally four weeks later is when dad had his last um, Sunday at the church. And so, you know, I definitely cried quite a bit through the service and, uh, or at least when he was talking or whatever. And, you know, I, I, I think I felt like I still needed him there maybe, or that it was more comforting to have him there. But um, especially when I had just you know, was just recently a foster mom and was going through all of that. But then when dad stepped aside to start the Hope Center, my whole family were very involved in it, but I actually wasn't very involved because I was a new foster mom and I'm single and my girls uh, were 13 and 14 at the time and um, they required all of my attention and all of my energy. And so I remember, yeah, I just remember not being able, you know, people were like, Oh, are you volunteering with them? No, I'm really no, not. I'm like busy. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I was trying to keep my head afloat. And I remember sure. at one point dad's like, she's running a hope center at her house right now. Right. Like she, she has nothing else to give besides what she's doing at her job and what she's doing in, in her home right now. And that's, and that's truly how I felt. So it was really about a year. Well, honestly, I, I can't even remember what I, I don't even remember a whole lot that I 
did here um, before I worked here because because I just didn't have it in me to give anything to anywhere else. And I know that sounds bad, but I think if people understand when you work at a church, you're already volunteering there extra hours and you're already doing a lot and you already have events that you're doing. You know, you're teaching every week and you're ministering to people there that have needs and um, trying to you know, trying to lead classes there and lead groups there and all of that. And so I came to some prayer meetings that were here. And then, of course, every um, Sunday when we would have Sunday dinner, I would hear, you know, my siblings and my dad talk about the Hope Center and everything. But it was it sounded like a lot of work to me at the time. And and the reason that I bring that up is because my brain was struggling at the time. (laughs) My uh, my energy, my mental, emotional health just from being a single mom of two girls that had a lot of needs at the time. And so I was I was on the, the brink of exhaustion. I was on the edge of just being able to keep up with my life. And so all I could do was pray, but that was a really good part too. And, and, and listen, and listen to them and just encourage them in the process. While we're talking about the foster, you know, you fostering, becoming mm-hmm. foster. How old were you when you became? I was 28 when they moved in. So you were 28 mm-hmm. and you fostered two teenage girls. Mm-hmm. And they were how old? They were 13 and 14 when they moved down. 13 and 14. Mm -hmm. So you want to tell that story of of how that happened? Because I know that wasn't wasn't exactly what you were thinking of when you first started talking about foster. That that was definitely a God thing that happened. Yeah. Well, so as I said, I was a children's minister at my church. And um, I always joke that, you know, people think that when you're in children's ministry that you just work with kids all day long, but that's actually not the case. I would have loved it if it was, (laughs) but I actually probably only 10 to 20% of my time each week was actually spent with kids. The rest of the time was spent with um, organizing the adults, training the adults, recruiting the adults and getting other things organized. But I loved I loved being with that elementary preschool age group. And so when I was applying to be a foster mom, I originally in my mind was thinking that, that I would be able to um, provide a p- safe place for kids that were preschoolers or elementary age students. And really because like I, as I was thinking just financially and logistics wise, I was thinking it would be great if they were school age, you know, mm-hmm. if they were in pre-K or in elementary so that Um, I could drop them off at school and then I could go to work. You know, that would be taken care of in terms of their care during the day. And so I, I wasn't really thinking that I was going to get teenagers, but I actually did put on there as a possibility that I would be open to it. And so when they called me and told me that they had two girls, um, they actually had their ages wrong a little bit, the case manager who called me, but she told me they were in sixth and seventh grade and they were actually both in eighth grade. (laughs) And so they showed up and they're like, no, we're in eighth grade. I was like, okay, slight change there. Wouldn't have changed my point of view, but I was just so ready to do, to be there for whoever needed me in my county. You're focused on being a very new young mom, and, mm-hmm. and this wasn't like, you know, fostering is is something that is extra special. It's mm-hmm. more than just having a baby and bringing your baby home. These are children that have a history. Mm-hmm. I assume that most of them have some trauma in their history. All of them do. Yeah. 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 Anytime and, a child is separated from their birth mother right. or anytime they've been, yeah any yeah it's a huge trauma for all of them the adjustment period Mm -hmm. um and doing that was taking on a lot 
So how how did you end up here as an associate director? Yeah, so finally, I did, dad asked me to teach a class here. Um, I think that was in 2018. Yeah, would have been in 2018. Dad asked me to teach a class here with the residents. And so I had actually just ordered this curriculum to do with one of my daughters who ended up refusing to do it with me, of course. Of course. Um, but then I ended up doing it with, or going through the, the material with a young lady from my church who actually had been in foster care herself um, and was a little bit older than my girls. And I just thought that curriculum was really good. It was by Nancy Alcorn, who actually founded Mercy Ministries, which is for, I think it's like ages 13 to 30 or something like that for women who are overcoming all sorts of addiction, trauma, whatever. I had been going through that curriculum with this young lady at my church. And so when dad asked me if I wanted to teach a class with the residents, he was like, hey, I really want you to come and do this. He actually asked me, of course, this is how he does it, right? He actually asked me once <laughs> before that happened. He asked me if I, he would, if I would just come and do like a one-time topic. And so I did that and I was like, oh, I, I really enjoy that. And like I said, I like teaching anyway. And then he asked me, okay, now I want you to do something, you know, regular. I knew that I could bring that curriculum in that I was already comfortable teaching it because I'd already done it before. And so I started teaching a class here in 2018 with the residents who were here at the time. And so after that, your your brother was associate director. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we had the opportunity to talk to your dad about, of course, David. Yeah. David's passing. Uh-huh. And then God put it on your heart to come and be associate director with your dad. So can you tell us a little bit about that transition period? Because I, I, I was here for that. And that was... Yeah. Sure. So actually, after David had passed, of course, we were completely devastated in every way possible. I don't know if people thought we were still functioning, but we weren't. <laughs> um, my church actually gave me a sabbatical. I was actually going to take the sabbatical that fall, but they offered me to take it that summer instead so that I could go ahead and have that time. And I really just wanted to I wanted to go have dinner with my mom every night. That was something that, that was my plan for my sabbatical. That was literally my plan um, for my sabbatical was to go have dinner with my mom every night because I knew that we all needed that. We were literally, and because it was summer, um, my sister that lives out of state was able to be there a lot. Um, my sister-in-law was there. The kids were out of school. Every All of my family were just at my parents' house like that whole summer. Like it just was, we were just over there all the time. And so I remember one day being there about three weeks after Dave had passed and dad asked me, you know, he said, Mary, I, I want you to come to the Hope Center. Can you start praying about that? Both of my sisters had actually already talked or had previously mentioned that to me. Both of my sisters who were working here, I have another sister, like I said, who lives out of state, but both of my sisters who were already working here. And, you know, I just... Like I said, I knew what a huge challenge it would be, and I'm not the type that just gets fired up over an idea. I'm really the type that wants to process it and research it, and I really, I, I guess I see the weight of things, you know? Like I, yeah, I'm not I'm not the type who begs for more responsibility. I'm really the type that just is very, yeah, very thoughtful about what I take on. And so when my sisters had mentioned it to me, I was, I just kind of, you know, I was just like, okay, like, let it, let it be like God's timing, like all of that, you know? And then when my dad mentioned it, 
you know, I, I told him I would begin praying about it. You know, the, what people may not understand is I loved my job at the church. I love it very much. And I still attend my church and I still try to teach when I can with the children's classes. I miss a lot of things about working at my church. I really do. Um, there's a lot of wonderful things that I miss about working at my church. And so I knew to give that up would be a sacrifice. And I, and I, this is like a silly thing to say, but like I was so, I felt the love of so many people at my church. Of course, there were some people that maybe didn't care for the way I taught or care for this or that. I don't know. But, but the majority of them were just so sweet and good to me that stepping into a new environment that I knew at the time, I mean, just from hearing my family talk, I knew was just, was just very challenging. And it was just the the hard work of laying the foundation of what the Hope Center needed to be or what was going to be. And so I knew it was heavy lifting stage. And so as soon as he asked me, I knew I was going to do it. I mean, even though I told him, I came back and told him two or three weeks later, dad, I can't make this decision right now. And the reason I can't make it yet is because I can't lose anything else yet. And that's what I told him. I said, I just lost Dave and I can't lose my church too. And and, you know, he and, he and mom were uh, sitting on the couch when I told him that. And they obviously really understood, but I was just like, I'm not at a place where I can do that yet. And so I just prayed on it some more. Yeah, some other things. I kind of had gone to the doctor and had gone to counseling and had, um, I had like I said, I had taken my sabbatical and I had gone back to work at the church um, after my sabbatical. And that was really hard, too. Just... Yeah, just walking back into the place, like, like for instance, I remember the first day I got back, of course I had been gone, you know, like my brother had passed, and then a couple, and I was in it sporadically for a couple of weeks, and, so, and then I took my sabbatical, which was a month, so I had been gone for like seven weeks, so by that point, the treasurer had been really patient with me to get, like, I have all these receipts for the children's ministry that I was supposed to turn in. And so that was the first thing when I got back was I saw that in my, you know, my office mailbox that I, that I needed to turn these receipts in. And so I was looking through my wallet, looking through my drawer to get all these receipts. And I saw these receipts of the day, like the week that David had passed. And, and that was like, you know, so you just like think, oh my gosh, like you, like right when it happens, you just are always still thinking about like how raw that was and what were what was I doing the weeks and the days before he passed, and so that like brought up a lot of stuff and and just wanting to wanting to get back into something really routine for me. I had been there for ten years, and so it was very comforting for me. Like the two weeks after David passed, I actually taught a lesson, a Bible lesson at the VBS, but I came in the back door and I left right then too. But like people were like, oh, I can't believe you're coming in to teach today. And I was like, well, this actually comforts me. Like being with the kids and teaching them actually really comforts me. I don't want to have all these other conversations with everyone, but so like teaching the kids that seemed really comforting to me on Sunday mornings, and I didn't want to give that part of my life up. Some of my other church staff members, I think they were aware that my dad was going to ask me and that I had this this um, opportunity presented that I would need to make a choice. And, you know, they just made it very clear that they would support me if I, you know, decided to come over here. And then when I finally did make the choice, I think it was in, um, it was the end of August, and then we 
literally announced it. I spoke in front of my church the first Sunday in September um, to share with them that I was going to come over here. So before then, and they, they I mean, we, we moved fast on it because the st- our staff at the time didn't want it to go around the rumor mill before I spoke. And so I actually just told all of the staff members at my church the Wednesday before I spoke to the church. I, I went around to some of them individually, and they each of them cried when I told them I was leaving and I was like okay people this is starting to get really emotional to me but like I guess Pastor Chris didn't cry (laughs) that was the only one I think who didn't cry but like Paul and Andy and Jay and Jill and Kristen like they all and Janice like they all cried when I told them and so that was pretty it was kind of hard for me to to know that yeah just to see how it was going to affect everybody so anyhow, I, I ended up speaking at my church. Then I got a, a very warm response from so many people and wanted to pray for me. And then um, I started here October 1st. And so it was very important to me that I literally wrote out everything. I'm a writer, of course. And so I wrote out everything I could think of that would be uh, beneficial for the next children's ministry leader to have and so and, and women's ministry leader. And so um, I, I spent that month, I mean, you know, doing different things, but part of what it did was just wrote out everything for her to know so that she there, she could look at any of that and at least know what was in my brain <laughs> um, to make it easier for her. And then when I came in over here, my dad actually asked me, I was supposed to start here on a Tuesday, and my dad actually asked me that Monday, he texted me that morning, hey, do you want to come in this afternoon and sit in on this and that? And I was like, no, <laughs> I am trying to clean out my office. Like, my office is not even clean yet. Like, you know, and, and here, here's the terrible thing. I remember you and I know Kathy Wright, and I remember Kathy, um, she was at our house, she was doing grief share with us. And I remember Kathy asking me, so are you excited to go work at the Hope Center? And I just looked at her and I said, um, I'm actually still grieving so hard. I'm not excited about anything in life right now. Like, and so that was really hard. I think for, I feel bad. I mean, it's not that I'm like actively feeling bad about it, but I feel bad that the rest of the Hope Center team thought I was going to come in here being really excited. And the truth was there was nothing in life I could be excited about at that time because I was still grieving so intensely. I remember that. I was here mm-hmm. when you came in. I, I think all of us, I think all, everyone working here would, had just felt this massive hole from David being yeah. gone. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Pastor... Which is exactly what we felt yeah. In, yeah, in my life and in my family. Yeah. And then Pastor, of course, wasn't here. So when you yeah. came in, everybody was so excited yeah. um, to have you there. And it was so needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just, we love you. We absolutely adore you. You've been great. You, you stepped into associate director, which was David's t- title, yeah. but in a much different way. Yeah. Um, and you have some different uh, spiritual gifts and some mm-hmm. different abilities and some different experiences that made the associate director uh, very different from what he was doing. It's a yeah. different type of role. And I know that fostering actually was a big influence mm-hmm. on your role here. So how did that prepare you to come in and work with these women that 
were in trafficking? How, right. what is that link between them? Yeah. So actually there's a high percentage of, of trafficking survivors who spent time in the foster care system. Different statistics will say different numbers, but it's a pretty big consensus that it's at least around 60%. So if you think about 60% of women who are in trafficking situations and men um, had spent time in the foster care system, then some of the things that I had researched and experienced as a foster mom are going to be so applicable here as well. And so, you know, when you when you just begin thinking about the abandonment that kids feel, even if their parents didn't mean to abandon them, it, the kid still takes that on as um, an abandonment wound. It, you know, if a ch- parent dies or if a parent is incarcerated, and then also just like seeing the use of substance substance abuse in the home um, as a child, if they're forced to witness that or if they're forced to participate in it even as a young kid, then that's a huge um, trauma for them. And then also just the fact that there's so much neglect and um, abuse, whether that's physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, all those kind of things that are happening um, before a child is removed from their home. With my experience and, and the the way my story played out is my two daughters ended up staying with me. And so they're actually still, still with me. And you so, actually, you actually adopted them, right? Well, I, I didn't actually adopt them legally. I have legal guardianship of them. Okay. And so, which I mean, they're 19 and 20 now. So just the way that the court was less than 1% of DCS cases end in legal guardianship, but it was basically the fastest way for me to just keep them in my home without the courts trying to send them out of state to a different relative, which, you know, all of their family was on board with them staying with me. It was just that the courts weren't on board with still giving services to me if they could send them somewhere else. And so, of course, they wanted to close the case. And so the the easiest way for me to keep them when they closed the case was for me to take legal guardianship of them. And so that's what we did. So, um, so it's the spirit of adoption. And we just say adoption because not very many people need to know all those details. Yeah. You always say my daughters, they're your daughters. Yeah. 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 I think what I experienced with them and really led me to research a lot of things about trauma and about, um, foster care, about what kids go through. I've been to several conferences, um, several webinars, several, I've, I mean, I can't even think of how many books I've read, probably like 20 books. I've listened to a thousand podcasts about, about it. And so, you know, I, I just am in that world. I, I say that TBRI saved my life. And so TBRI is trust-based relational intervention. And it was out of the Karen Purvis Institute in, in Texas. And the, just learning those principles um, of saying that this is a specific way to parent children that come from hard places that has shown a lot greater success than just kind of parenting them in the traditional sense. And it's really based on connection and relationship, but, but it's not just a free for all. It's uh, correcting while connecting. That really just made things. Yeah. It just helped me so much in my, my techniques of parenting the girls. I was just all in for that. And I was, even now, if someone tells me that they're fostering or they're adopting, I'm like, okay, when you're ready, come talk to me. I'm going to give you all these resources because you're going to need them. Right. And uh, unless you're the child is the one miracle child who is not showing any signs right. of trauma, um, you will need these. And so I think for me then coming in here, what was interesting about the class that I first started teaching here, even before I was working here, was that the women would often bring up issues or pains from their childhood. I thought, oh my goodness, here they've been trafficked, but what they are bringing up in this class 
our wounds from their childhood. That obviously is still really important to them. That's something that, you know, as I teach here and as I lead prayer meetings sometimes and as I just interact with them in different ways, I'm still thinking about how can I bring healing, how can I bring comfort to something that she experienced when she was five or when Mm -hmm. she was eight or when she was 14 and no one was there to help her with this or that, you know. It's completely helped my my mindset understand more of where the women are coming from, for sure. That's great. Mm-hmm. So we're going to dive, because that's, that's a huge topic, mm-hmm. and we're going to get to that a little later down the road in another podcast, because mm-hmm. we're going to bring Gina Kohlkleiser in, yeah. who is your residential director, mm-hmm. um, good friend of mine, yeah. and you've known her for, for quite a while. Yeah. Um, but so we're, we're going to hold off on diving any further into um, some of the uh, aspects of caring for people sure. in trafficking. But I do want to talk about some of your other responsibilities because you're not just involved with the residents and the mm-hmm. residential program. But Hope Center India is so much bigger yeah. than just those residential programs. You also head up the outreach ministries, mm-hmm. correct? I want to talk a little bit about those outreach ministries. How many ministries are here right now? Do yeah, you, do you know? A, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> yeah. There's so a few. It, it kind of just depends on the day sometimes. But I would say there's seven or eight that are here on campus. And then there are about 20 some that are like connected with us partnering. Um, so we have, of course, our prayer center, which we have, a, you know, a weekly prayer meeting. We have staff prayer meeting. We have different people that come in to pray during the during the day. Um, and then we also try to have other like, you know, times that people can we've had grief share classes in here, that kind of thing. We do our trainings in the prayer center as well, but really wanting to continue to grow our prayer center ministry. We really believe in the power of prayer and we really believe it's necessary for us to keep moving forward around here. And so, so that's something we're continuing to develop as, as an outreach ministry here, not only for our staff, volunteers and residents, but just for our community and for the churches that are supporting us as well. And then uh, we have our food pantry. And so that's a, a huge one for us. Michelle, Gambrel has a, an amazing team and they do they have a food pantry every Thursday night that's for our community and so they give out food and um, that's been something that you know has they actually October of 2019 I think is when they started and so they've really worked very hard especially during COVID but they've yeah they've got it down to where they're giving out lots of food every week to probably at least, I mean, I think it depends on the week, but a lot of times it can be anywhere from 50 to like 80 families. So it just depends. That's a lot considering they've not been open that long. Yeah. It's grown yeah, really fast. It has. And then we have Revive School of Transformation here as well. And so that's with Dave Knoll. He was actually a good friend of my brother, David. And uh, Dave went through his classes several years ago and they really helped spur him on to greater faith and to just ministry in general of how to minister and care for people. So Dave Knoll has his classes here. And uh, what's really cool, actually, I don't know if you know this, but uh, one of his students in his class, after um, coming here for his class and then coming to some of our prayer meetings and stuff, she actually volunteered to be a res tech. And then she, after a couple of months volunteering, she kind of said, hey, if you guys need another res tech, let me, you know, a full-time res tech. And so um, now she's actually a full-time res tech on our staff. And that was her first connection here was through his class. And so, yeah, his class is really good. And and actually, um, some of our students, some of the the Grace House ladies that are here and some of our Hope Community ladies, they get to do his class. And um, Dad says it's kind of like discipleship on steroids. But it's just 
everybody loves it. They love Dave and Sandy who lead it, and um, it's it's a really cool impact. But it's for the whole, you know, people can can sign up, and it is a um, they have to it's twice a week, and they have to um, pay for the classes just to show that commitment and to help provide for the resources. It's a it's a really neat ministry. They dive in a lot to your spiritual gifts. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then Carolyn Knight is also here on our campus. And so she leads a ministry called Light and Darkness. And so she goes to strip clubs and tries to minister to women there. So she actually, not just herself, even though she goes herself, but she actually leads. uh, She's got tons of teams around the U.S., uh, mostly in the Midwest and the South, uh, teams of women that she trains to go into strip clubs to minister to them, to befriend the women, and to just help them get resources if they want to get out but even just sharing with them the good news of Jesus right where they are. Right. Mm-hmm. So aside from the out, outreach ministries, uh-huh. you also have other ministries that you partner with. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know that Margot Ward runs Hope Launch. Launch Hope. Launch Hope. Uh-huh. Okay. And what are some of the other ministries that you also work with that are not necessarily outreach, but we're still partnered with them? Yeah, so New Day Center is um, an incredible ministry that we've been partnering with for several months, if not a, over a, probably over a year now, actually. And so they do addiction recovery. Um, they have a residential facility for men, but right now they currently have an IOP for women, and I think they have like some counseling services and that kind of thing. And so um, that's been a great partnership for us to be able to. Um, have some of the residents who may be able to or would benefit from having an IOP that for them it's a faith-based IOP and uh, we really trust the leadership there. So for people who don't know, IOP stands for? Intensive outpatient. Yeah, okay. And that's a recovery. It's yes. a recovery. Yeah. It, so it's if you have abused substances in the last six months, then it's recovery. So the majority of women who come into our program have abused substances in the last six months. So a lot of the women who come into our program are in need of that kind of IOP. It's just helpful, you know, for lack of better terms, to, while the fog clears, um, for them to just really be able to dive into that recovery piece before jumping into all the other classes that we may have for them that can help them specifically there. So New Day's been incredible. Um, We also partner with Wellspring Center from Brandywine Community Church, and they've been incredible also. They've, yeah, they've just provided some peer, you know, coaching, but they've also had different classes that they've ran um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays Mm -hmm. that has been a great thing for our women. They've also come here sometimes and have hosted a few events here for the women. So that's been great. You also head up and and kind of help organize, run the executive leadership team, Mm -hmm. which you were blessed with um, EOS. Yes. Came in. Mm -hmm. Um, You want to? Talk a little bit yes. more about that because I, I, I don't even want to try to attempt to try to explain that. No, that's okay. Yeah. And so, you know, I started here in October and then we actually met uh, Dale Cooper, who's an implementer for the entrepreneurial operating system. Um, and he came in in December. So right when I came here is when we started showing us about EOS and when we started working with him to really implement it in um, the Hope Center's structure. And so part of the EOS structure is to have an executive team that then is leading different departments and that people are accountable for all those things and that kind of thing. Um, it's it's uh, ran on traction, which is there's a book called Traction. It's all about having like this weekly meeting pulse. And so that's what we've been doing for, you know, the last two years just about. Anyhow, so when we started the EOS structure, you know, they often say that different organizations will have a visionary. Um, So like Walt Disney was a visionary, but then Walt Disney had, I think 
I might be wrong here, but I think it was his brother actually, who is more like the integrator, the person who's doing more of the day-to-day details because the visionary, like they say, like a visionary will have 20 good, 20 ideas a day and one of them, only one of them are good. But like that one is incredible, you know what I mean? And so, but the integrator has got to be able to uh, navigate through all of those and to say, you know, we're going this direction or whatever. And so the way that US is set up is you have a visionary, then you have an integrator, and then you have the executive team. And so I'm in that structure, I'm the integrator. And so that means that I work with dad, who's a visionary, who is literally the best, <laughs> um, the best example of a visionary that right. there ever could be. Right. Um, he, yeah, that's, although I'm very proud of him for um, really trying hard to make sure he's sticking to the rules of EOS and to um, just the day-to-day operation stuff that he's working on. Yeah, yeah. it's not easy to realize. And so I'm also a visionary. Yes, and uh, <laughs> she's yeah. like, I know you. Um, and so it's it's difficult for us to stay focused mm-hmm. and stay on track. And and you have what are they called? Ninety day rocks. Yeah, so uh-huh. can what is it? Seven of them or? Yeah, you you're, you're supposed to pick like three to seven. And so he says if you pick more than that, then you you know that's too many. So like you, you know, you want to be able to actually focus them and you want to be able to get them done. And so we actually just had our last quarter and then we have a quarterly meeting every 90 days. And so at that 90 days, then we bring up like for the whole hope center, what do we think needs is important for us to get done in the next 90 days. Mm -hmm. So it's really trained us to think, um, you know, he says that people often overestimate what they can do in short period of time, but they underestimate what they can do in a long period of time. And so it's trained us to realize, okay, is this, is this particular problem or this particular task a 90 day task or is it actually like a, you know, a six month task. And if it is a six month task, we, we need to get working on it, but we're going to somehow, we're going to define that, that 90 day rock to being like part one of this yeah, task breaking it down into, yeah, yeah, breaking it down. And so that's been really helpful for us. But, um, yeah, th- what I was just going to say is that our last quarterly meeting, we actually got all of our rocks done except what? for one, but even that one, we were still really proud because we came so close. And, awesome. um, and so our, inter- our implementer was very proud of us. And, um, he says that the normal, the average is like for people to get 80% of their rocks done every quarter. So we, we were excited that we got that many done. <laughs> and it's a great way to stay focused. Oh, yes. Um, because there is so much, especially when you have so many moving parts in a ministry like mm-hmm. this, so many people come in and they have great ideas mm-hmm. and let's do this or let's do that. And you can end up doing a hundred different things, but you're not going to ever do any of them well. So yeah. this program that came in, that was a gift to you. Oh, absolutely. Um, they, what is it? They pick one a year. They actually pick two nonprofits a year to do um, for free. And so it's just incredible that they chose us and so his uh Dale's daughter is actually interning with us now oh that's awesome I know we're like she's so amazing and so we're we're like this family has really given so much to us they have they have but I think when people um the point that I want to get to is is when people talk about Hope Center Indy Mm -hmm. and they think about trafficking um, and they think about the girls and, and people want to come and they want to volunteer or yeah. they want to be part of, or maybe they don't because they don't necessarily want to work with the girls, but there is so much that goes into running an operation like this. Mm-hmm. It is not just about working with the girls directly, the ladies directly. Um, it is not just about, uh, being, you know, self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. It is 
like any other business that has a structure and executive team and accounting and marketing and mm-hmm. all of those types of things that lots lots of people have talents in and if they're willing to volunteer they're interested in volunteering we have we have spots mm-hmm. for those types of volunteers as well yeah absolutely. absolutely yeah well I just want to thank you so much for coming in and being so vulnerable and talking with us I always love talking and you're going to be back I we're hope gonna so. Be, yeah, yeah, we're going to be back and we're going to get Jean in here and we're going to yeah. dive into this. So thank you so much. I always love spending time with yeah. you. I appreciate Thanks it.